0: And welcome back to part two of 1772, the origins of Hasidus and the controversy that it created. So welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We were discussing last week why it started, the internal conflict it created within the Jewish world. We went through the, the history, the start of it. But the main point that emerged, at least how I remember it, was that in many ways, both sides of the conflict acted almost without a choice. They were more or less forced to act as they did given how they saw what the stakes were for the future of Eastern European Jewry. I mean, the Hasidim were trying to solve the issue. What? The Misnagdim, on the other hand, were trying to okay, solve so, uh, the
1: Hasidus issue. Uh, let me cut through to this. In other words, uh, meaning both sides would do the same thing, were history
0: to repeat itself.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Yes. More succinctly put. Yes. Right. Su- what's that? What's succinctly put, yeah.
1: Okay, so we had three questions. Why did the Kherom, the excommunication, fail in 1772? Or perhaps to put it differently, how did Hasidus survive? You know, you can say, MS, the truth, always survives. But why did it flourish? It thrived in the next couple of decades. And then the second question is, why, if it was flourishing, did the movement splinter after 1772? Why were there suddenly no worthy successors? And third question, going back a few years, why was the Magid of Meserich chosen in the first place after the Baal died? Meaning he is not the natural candidate for the succession. He came to Hasidus only a short time before the Baal Shemtov died. He's not accepted by everyone.
0: What do you mean by he wasn't the natural candidate? Why can't he, why can't he just be the best man for the job?
1: Well, they, they were definitely closer Talmidim, And you would have expected a public crowning of the successor. This is the second person to lead the movement. It's a very important time, and there should have been greater fanfare. And the disciples, so to speak, don't seem to have been consulted.
0: Yeah, but surely he earned the right to lead over time, no?
1: It depends what you mean by that. If you mean that there was some sort of contest for leadership between, I don't know, the, the, the mugged and B'yakov Yosef of Polnoe, for instance. So it's not documented anywhere. And anyway, uh, logic says it couldn't have happened because if there had been a, a long, drawn-out struggle for leadership at that point, it's hard to imagine that Hasidus could have survived. It would have disintegrated into separate groups because of the struggle between rivals.
0: More meant that he earned the right through carrying out the wishes of the Baal Shem Tov more than anyone else. Okay,
1: not once again quite sure what you have in mind, but you are right. Uh, (laughs) This is the unknown part about early Hasidus. It was never led in the manner that Hasidus is being led today. In other words, the status of the Magid as the heir of the Besht was not a direct, formally instituted successor but an heir in the broadest sense of the word. He was regarded as the greatest of his peers, just as the Balshemtov had been before him. It wasn't based on any formal procedure. If anything, it's his own charismatic personality. He's an heir, but only in a way that would not require the removal of other Hasidic leaders who didn't accept his authority or perhaps even if they did accept his authority but they could remain very independent of him in fact even during the earlier time of, of the Baal of himself he was quite happy to have his Talmidim run independent uh, operations it, it's very very different to how a Hasidic dynasty works today the last thing they want is another competing branch it ends up very messy so 250 years ago at the beginning of hasidus other branches are not only tolerated they're encouraged
0: so in what way were they leaders
1: well they're dominant figures you know nowadays the the sphere of of influence of each tzaddik is defined and zealously guarded, just like the boundaries of any Kehillah or any yeshiva. So across all Jewish institutions, direct competition isn't encouraged much. But back then, they hadn't yet institutionalized Hasidus. You see it clearly if you look at the yeshiv chehabesht, that he is very far removed from a sort of a khutsa court in which there is one spiritually outstanding personality who dominates the congregation and everybody is dependent on that leader so the Baal Shem Tov, when he was looking for a successor wanted somebody who had enough uh, personality knowledge and independence that they could be a leader who created leaders, not followers, not Hasidim, within their own lifetime. So new courts are set up during the Magid's lifetime, apparently on his initiative. Rabbi Ram of Kalisk, for example, he deferred to his teacher, but he was already heading his own congregation in Belarus in 1770. So too, Rabbi Nachman Wendel of Vitebsk, is the head of a community of Hasidim in Minsk, and and Hasidim travel to him. Rebaran of Karlin, we mentioned last week, and even though Rabaran is counted as one of the disciples of the Magid, uh, sort of a, a member of, if we put it that way, the third generation, he must have been an, an actual Hasidic leader while the Magid was still alive, for the very simple reason that he died before the Magid did in 1772. Um, although one very interesting point to note, and it's in line with what we've been saying, is that the Cherem only occurs during the time of the Mugged, not the time of the Baal Shem Tov. Why, Why is that? Because if the Mugged was creating leaders, it is in some way more of a threat than the Baal Shem Tov who's creating Hasidim. Uh, the mugged was far more focused on the five percent elite than the ninety-five percent and it's very interesting equally that it was specifically in his lifetime that the Vilnagon starts accepting Talmudim. He does not have Talmudim before 1759. Which is why, unlike the Balshemtov, the mugged of Meserich doesn't travel. He he wasn't a mugged in that sense. And the Hasidic leaders of their own communities rarely visit him. There weren't general assemblies of uh, Hasidim or leaders from other communities that come to Meserich. The only famous event was in Rovno in the summer of 1772, a few months before his death. And that was called in response to the proclamation of the herem. Um And the meeting was there to... Uh, Allow the hasidic leaders to consult to create a campaign you know how to to coordinate their attitude to it and those that attended they were disciples of the magid they were close to the and they regarded him as a spiritual master but he didn't chart their path in life
0: so you're saying that it was almost as if the movement was made to splinter
1: Yes. In other words, going back to our earlier question of why did the movement splinter, that's how it was created, a, a, as a non-centralist movement. So it, it changes to a multiplicity of leaders. Uh, you know, at the eldest end, you have the Beditra, the youngest is the Balatania, um, And then in Poland, it, it sort of crystallizes through the Nome and El-Emelach. These are all Talmidim of the Mesritsch Magid. And he then has four Talmidim, and there's a, a posuk in Bereshis about this, uh, you know, So you have three. You have the um, Eden is the source, the Nohor is the second, that's the a Magid. Um, that's the Noemeli Melech. It then goes off in four directions because those are his four main Talmidim.
0: That's fascinating. And the third question you ask, why did the Hiram fail?
1: Well, in a way, if you think about it sort of laterally, it's because of this reason, meaning there is no central figure to target. No one was the leader in capital letters. The Magid led Hasidus. And gave it impetus and chizuk, but not singular direction. So all these excommunications, these accusations, uh, denunciations to the authorities, even the full weight of the authority of the Vilna couldn't have the mistagnim stamp out this sect of Hasidus, even in Lithuania, because Hasidus isn't concentrated in one place or vested in one person. So who are you going after? You're trying to hit a moving target. You know, for example, the Kherom of 1781, it mentions a whole range of uh, what they call deviant behavior and groups. And each of these groups might have been part of Hasidus, but they didn't have a common connection with each other. It's a very broad target. You know, if you look at the proclamation of the Kherom by uh, the Kehillah of uh, Brody in uh, 1772, it says, you know, our Kehillah has no power to bind other Kihilis to undertake an investigation um, but since we are the largest community in the area or whatever we are obliged to make you aware of how strongly we feel about this so the kherom fails because it couldn't be addressed against any individual of course there, there are other reasons it's not just organizational structure within halacha Hasidus didn't stray out of the bounds in the mainstream of Hasidus, unlike, you know, Shabtai Tzvi or whatever. And also, gradually, Hasidic leaders entered into existing communal institutions without challenging them by a, a frontal assault. And that facilitated the spread. But above all, it was the power of their message and the the, the magnetism of the Hasidic leaders this new framework of religious life, which they created, was genuinely attractive. It offered a viable alternative to what had been going on until now.
0: Yeah, but you could say the same about reform almost.
1: Yeah, but uh, you have to take into account that, as I said, it didn't step out of uh, right. the framework of Allah, all the other things that occurred. Yeah, additionally, it as well. yeah. yeah. And it's very noteworthy that the Talmudim of the Maggid take Hasidus not only into Poland, but into Central and Western Europe. The, the two brothers, Rub Schmelko of Nickelsburg, which is in Moravia, Central Europe, and he's the chief rabbi of the entire region, and Reb Pinchus, his brother, is the Rav of Frankfurt. Frankfurt, right? So uh, now, admittedly, in both of these cases, they had to keep their Hasidus under wraps, even in terms of dress and definitely in terms of, of Nusach of Tvila and customs. But the very fact that two of the most prominent of the Maggid's ten main Talmidim are chosen to lead these
0: prestigious Kahillas tells you much about the success of Hasidus. Right. Were any of the Hasidic writings targeted or just... Uh... No, that would have
1: been quite difficult because there's actually, people not necessarily aware of this, nothing is published before 1781. The first famous Hasidic Sefer is the Toldos. Sefer told us um, Yaakov Yosef, which has remained a very important work in Hasidic literature. It's an attack against the religious leadership of its day, which he said is disenfranchising the common people. And this Sefer is the main source for the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov.
0: We don't have anything from the Baal Shem Tov himself? A
1: few letters, but no, he never wrote a Sefer. And Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polnoi recorded the teachings of his master and expanded on them through his own thinking the book only sold a few copies because it was very strongly suppressed it was put to the flames in a number of cahillus unsurprisingly and the remaining copies were really sought after um, so that nowadays a a completely Complete copy in good condition is an absolute rarity, although there is one in the Library of Congress, if uh, you're of so moved to look <laughs> it up. And one last general remark about the history of the development of Hasidus is that by the mid-19th century, the hereditary principle of leadership within Hasidus in other words that leadership passed down within a family or a dynasty was actually also applicable to the affiliation of a chassid to chassidus it was also transmitted so to speak from generation to generation as a as an established family tradition and therefore whereas initially you can talk about beginning to uh, you know belonging to the movement of chassidus in general this gives way to belonging to exclusively i would say to a particular branch or hotsa or type so much so that you then get political and ideological divides within the movement to the same degree as it does between itself and
0: orthodoxy in general maybe you explained this before but just to clarify again when did the Hasidim? branch out into very different sects, each one focusing, each one has their own flavor and their own color. When
1: the revolution is over. In other words, it starts slightly within the talmudim of the Magid, but the fourth generation, by then they are already establishing dynasties. And even if the successors are not always uh, father to some, it's now stabilized and it's becoming the institution and therefore need stability but that's the
0: 1800s early 1800s onwards what were they all influenced by how did each one come to their own flavor and own color it was influenced by the surroundings
1: they took a lot from their own teacher whoever that was in, in that particular instance and Yes, I mean, it, it was also coloured by being in Poland, or in Hungary, or in Ukraine. Uh, that and the, was, the
0: that dress code, the stramel. So
1: all of that, I mean, I think I've mentioned this in the previous podcast, can't remember. but <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I have seen the stramel of Peter the Great um, in the Kremlin. I have a photo of it. Um, the only <laughs> difference, it's got the black... Couple-ish in the middle but it's got a cross coming out of it now oh. peter the great is in the 18th century which means that it is around at the time of hasidus they are adopting the dress of nobility often just after it's fallen out of fashion with nobility but not always and what they are doing is creating on shabbos malchus that this is royalty you will create that sense of royalty from
0: within that's where it comes from wow Wow. you mentioned one other major event in 1772 what was that
1: yes so we touched on it very briefly at the beginning of last week but to expand on it starting in 1772 and carrying on basically for the next 20 years, Poland and Lithuania will disappear from the map. You know, people will tell you in the 1800s that they hail from Poland, but they don't, because it doesn't exist. (laughs) It's a country one day and gone the next for nearly 130 years. The Hovetsheim wasn't born in Poland and didn't live there for most of his life. The Hasidus of Ger, or Sons, wasn't created as a Polish Hasidus. They were, in the one case, in a Russian, and in the other case, an Austrian empire.
0: How about the yeshivas in Lithuania?
1: Yeshiva of wasn't in Lithuania, nor was Mir, or Brisk, from a political perspective, <laughs> uh-huh. shall we say.
0: I was going to say, I thought you'd do tours right. there. <laughs> right.
1: In other words, they are swallowed up by three empires, really two, Um, In the east, Russia. In the south, Austria, an area which becomes known as Galicia. And in the northwest, Prussia. And these empires are non-democratic. They have a strong military presence. And it's quite ironic because at the very same time in the Western world, revolutions were happening to bring about. Greater democracy and representation. You know, the United States, France, even England was broadening its political system. And perhaps the greatest irony was that while Poland was uh, shrinking and being repeatedly attacked and eviscerated between 1772 and 1795, they created the first representative parliamentary system of laws, a charter didn't help them because they just get swallowed up and all their laws are abolished
0: so what what'd this mean for the jews at the time
1: well i could be dramatic and say everything <laughs> um all stories start somewhere and the 19th century was one long story for the ashkenazi world not all of it pretty and it starts right here in 1772 and every definition that jews carry today emerges As a result, whether it's reform, conservative, secular, um, Zionist, even orthodox, it was a term that is first used in the 1800s. And now, since the majority of Ashkenazi Jews are in one empire, this Russian empire, um, as a result of the partitions, any movement created in it makes an impact on the entire Ashkenazi world. The the Musa movement, the yeshiva system, uh, Jewish socialism. And when... We speak of things happening once upon a time. That time starts in 1772 when Poland's three neighbors, you know, tore off large chunks of a a country. And it meant for the people living there, they had lived in a Commonwealth. They would now have to deal with Austrian bureaucracy, with with Russian officialdom, with uh, Prussian administration. It's an encounter between a, a large Jewish community which had not only existed in one place for centuries, as we've mentioned, with an age-old tradition, obviously, but had been run along semi-autonomous lines, self-governing in in many ways. And this would all come crashing down when 1772 manifests. Economically, their fortunes don't change, definitely didn't improve, but the political landscape changed. They'd been subservient to a local landowner, to local nobility. And suddenly it all becomes central government. And the, the Wada Arbarots is the Council of Four Lands ceased in 1764. It didn't help either. And these military regimes rule Poland. They redraw the map of Europe. And they now have to figure out how to deal with their Jews.
0: I mean, even though the political landscape changed so dramatically, I'm sure the Jews there didn't, They didn't stop feeling they were Polish or they were...
1: No, let's take it to London. In 1884, there is a newspaper printed in London for immigrants coming from the Russian Empire, and it's called the Polische Yiddel.
0: It's now called the Jewish right. Tribune.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was not a religious paper. Almost <laughs> right. none of them. It was probably anarchist. Um, but governance wasn't happening from Warsaw or Vilna. The Rebels of Gare backed two polish rebellions against the russians in order to try and achieve independence again in poland so you know there are wow. quite some clear lines of demarcation what, what were they hanging on to tradition what
0: familiarity
1: well, no, they, and also more autonomy under the russians you had basically none right and in many ways 1772 is the date of the birth of the modern era for the jews of europe not modern in that they become part of society or culture but modern in the change that occurs now because it lasts till at least the end of the first world war sometimes as far as the second world war and it shapes definitions and identity to this very day um, and russia will see the biggest change because until 1772 no jew is allowed to live in holy mother russia and now with the stroke of a pen. This changes, and there's a vast Jewish population who are Russian citizens. So, you know, I guess we do need to chart the course of the next 250 years at some stage. We've spoken in previous podcasts of the immediate impact in Austria, um, in in Galicia, in other words, and in Prussia. uh, When we dealt with 18th century Prague, especially parts three and four, Russia remains to be done. But chassidus does serve somewhat of an introduction to life there what was going on and where people were at, where the common folk were at etc
0: well that was a brilliant podcast i found it fascinating by the way before we go there's been so many emails and people are getting quite frustrated with me that i haven't yeah. responded with specific times for the exclusive tour of the cambridge Geniza and i'm not going to let you go until you have more information for me
1: fine so let me tell you where (laughs) we're at post a phone call today and emails etc it's not as simple as that we almost certainly have a date Uh, i should have confirmation of it tomorrow but it isn't wednesday the 27th there is now an exhibition about darwin and his writings Now, I don't know if you know, but a few years ago, someone walked off with one of Darwin's original diaries, the one in which he had his drawing of his so-called Tree of Life. It sort of walked out of the Cambridge Library, and very recently, in the last, I think, six months, the library put out an appeal for its anonymous return, and it was returned. Wow. No one knows who took it. No one knows who brought it back. There's all sorts of theories in the library, obviously. Anyway, so now they've got a Darwin exhibition, but the library, as a result, is much more cagey about where it allows its visitors to be, in which rooms. So previous rooms which I have been in, which have valuable manuscripts and books on the bookcases in the room, are now off-limits for visits. So there are less rooms, and that means midweek has far more limited space. Friday, however, is a very good day for visit. Okay, so which Friday? So it's looking like late morning of Friday, the 22nd of July, which is in the three weeks, but not the nine
0: days. And the timings?
1: Probably to start at 10.45, so to leave London to get there in time, about 9.15. So You can't go to the latest Shacharis. <laughs> and, and how long does it take? About an hour and a quarter to get there, be there about 10 minutes beforehand, and we'll be in there for two hours, something like that, which and will, the, the two hours will pass very quickly.
0: Fantastic. Well, we've had a lot over 20 people that have applied. Okay. So uh, we're going to, I'm sure there'll be a few cancellations. So Anyone who does, who is interested, should still contact us because there could potentially be a follow-up trip, depending on demand. I guess that closes this series. Yes. Look forward to confirmation. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch.